We're going to cover a lot of territory. We're going to look back at prophecies that were made through Moses and Hosea. And we're going to look at historical events. We're going to look to the future that is described in Daniel and Revelation. And we're going to look at life after death. We're going to be going backwards and forwards. We're going to go down and up. And sometimes it might sound like a history lesson. Sometimes it may sound like a doomsday forecast or a ghost story, but everything is related to who Jesus is and how people respond to him. And we want to make sure that what we believe is what we have been told about him. We want to believe what we have been told about him and we want to respond in the right way. In the introductory summary of the gospel to Luke, the Nelson study Bible that I have here in front of me every week says that Luke emphasizes that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And with that word, please remind yourself, Messiah means king. It technically means anointed one, but the anointed one is anointed to be the king. So he's the chosen one. He is God's king. So when you see Messiah, think king. And Luke emphasizes that Jesus is the son of God. He emphasizes that Jesus is the servant through whom God works. And he emphasizes that Jesus is the Lord who is called to sit at God's right hand, exerting his authority. So we are going to see authority from Jesus today in what we look at. As we look at Luke's description of Jesus' procession to the cross and the promise that was made to the criminal on the cross, we see Luke's continued focus on Jesus' identity. And we see two different responses to Jesus highlighted. And this is what life is always about. How do people respond to Jesus? We have the daughters of Jerusalem and the blasphemous criminal representing the Jewish rejection of the Messiah. So that's one response. And then we have the repentant criminal representing the reception of the Messiah. So we're going to look at the contrast between these two groups that are in this passage in Luke. Rejection or reception. There's no middle ground. It's one way or the other. The response has consequences. And these are bad for those who reject Jesus. And they are good consequences. Well, that doesn't say it well enough, does it? They are great, amazing consequences for those who receive Jesus. Now I need to tell you, there is so much prophetical background to the passages that are in Luke that we have studied this week. We need to see what Jesus was referring to when he told the women to cry for themselves. Don't cry for him. And what was he referring to when he told the criminal that he would be with him in paradise? And what was the criminal thinking when he talked about, remember me when you enter your kingdom? The women and the people of Jerusalem would face the judgment of God and the criminal would join Jesus in a place of joy. So 
we're going to see those two things contrasted and highlighted. Those who reject Jesus are also rejecting God. This has been the long, sad story of the Israelites. Israel was warned as a nation over and over again that if they rejected God and his ways, they would suffer the consequences. God gave good promises to Israel through Moses. Here's Deuteronomy 4.1, where the Lord is saying, Now, Israel, listen to the statutes and ordinances that I'm teaching you to follow so that you may live, enter and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers is giving you. That's the promise. And God explained what would happen if they didn't listen. So I have two passages, one long passage from Deuteronomy on two slides. Deuteronomy 4, 25. When you have children and grandchildren and have been in the land a long time, and if you act corruptly, if you make an idol in the form of anything and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, provoking him to anger, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that you will quickly perish from the land. You'll quickly perish from the land you are about to cross the Jordan to possess. You will not live long there, but you will certainly be destroyed. It continues, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be reduced to a few survivors among the nations where the Lord your God will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see, hear, eat, or smell. But from there you will search for the Lord your God and you will find him when you seek him with all your heart and all your soul. You probably know that Israel went through one cycle after another of disobeying the Lord, then repenting, then following, then disobeying and repenting and following and again and again and again. There were some glory days when David was king and when Solomon built the temple. But the Israelites were intrigued and allured by idol worship and pagan practices and They also just went their own way, did their own thing, independently of the Lord. They rejected God, but he reminded them and warned them of his guaranteed judgment. He spoke through the psalmists and the prophets, telling Israel that they would be attacked, they would be captured, they would go into exile. The psalmists, the prophets, declared God's judgment to Israel. But even as terrible judgment was prophesied, so too were messages of hope given. And keep in mind, well, I'll say this next stage statement. Uh, Hosea gives us a statement that captures both the judgment of Israel and the hope of the messianic kingdom. Hosea presents this just as Luke gives us these two aspects of God's prophecies. So I'm going to unpack that in just a second. But I want to say, regarding God's judgments on Israel, when he prophesied, when he gave these words, they were warnings, they were opportunities to repent. So the prophecy, those who listened to the prophecy had the opportunity to make a change. So that is good news. And there was enough hope. So the judgment is a discipline. It is a teaching and a a correction to lead Israel back to him. So I just wanted to mention that. Those who reject Jesus will suffer judgment. 
And if they keep rejecting Jesus until the day they die, then they're going to suffer eternal judgment. Those who return to the Lord and receive him as their king will enjoy his goodness. Now we're going to see this in Hosea. First, the bad news. Hosea 3, 4. The Israelites must live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. And the very next sentence is good news. Afterwards, after those many days, the people of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come with awe to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So that's putting it way out. So we're going to sit on the bad news for a little while. The bad news is the prophecy that Israel would live for many days for a long time, an unspecified amount of time without king or prince. And that has been their status ever since the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. Even when they went back to Jerusalem after the exile, they had no king. Even when Herod the Great was king over Israel, he was not the legitimate Jew Uh, He wasn't from the tribe of Judah. He was not of the line of David. And there's no king ruling Israel today. So since the Babylonian exile, the Israelites must live for many days without sacrifice or sacred pillar. And this refers to two things. I've got it all listed in the sentence here. They will lose. I've already talked about this. Israel loses their independence as a nation and they would lose their king. And they lose their government and they would lose their temple, their priests and system of worship. That's what's being referred to with this sacrifice and sacred pillar. Sacrifice is a part of the Levitical worship system and it is to be done at the temple. The Jews had no way to offer sacrifices when they were in the Babylonian exile. So that was the immediate fulfillment of this verse in Hosea. They did return to Israel. They did rebuild the temple. They did offer sacrifices there for about 400 years. But ever since 70 AD, there's been no temple. And that means there's been no legitimate sacrifice. And there's been no high priest with an ephod. And the ephod is that outer overlaying garment and the breastplate of the high priest was on that. It was attached to it. And the breastplate had the 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. So having no king, no government, no sacrifices, no temple, all of this is part of the judgment on the people of God who rejected God. And then they rejected Messiah Jesus at the day of his visitation. Hosea 3, 4 also says that Israel will live without sacred pillar or household items, idols. And that is debated as to whether it means um, more parts of the Levitical worship system, like the Urim and the Thummim, (laughs) special stones, or are they idolatrous things? It seems to me that they are idolatrous things, a sacred pillar, a stone, a household idol. And Israel was definitely involved in that. But after the Babylonian exile, they gave that up. 
So to live for many days without this is that's good, and that was that was an important part of what they learned through the Babylonian exile. We see from this statement that you've made notes of now that Hosea three four is a declaration of judgment, a declaration that Israel would lose their independence as a nation. They would lose their king and government. They would lose their temple and priests and system of worship. Everything that God had given to them would be taken away. That was judgment. They were to learn from that. When Jesus declared judgment on Jerusalem, the people heard a similar prophecy. So I want to show you Luke 13, 35. You saw this in your homework. Jesus says, see, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The house refers to the temple and being left desolate means being destroyed. Jesus is the true king of Israel who was rejected and Israel will not see him until they return to him. So he says, you won't see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus gave an ominous prophecy that army would attack Jerusalem. Luke nineteen forty three through 44. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another. And now for the history lesson. Wikipedia summarizes the Roman attack on Jerusalem pretty well. So here are some cliff notes of that. In the summer of 70 AD, and this is after about six years of turmoil coming from the Romans, Titus led the Roman army and he eventually used the collapse of several of the city walls to breach Jerusalem. So they got in, ransacking and burning nearly the entire city. The Romans began by attacking the weakest spot, um, and that's the third wall. Then after a five-month siege, so they breach the city, they get in, and five more months, the city is destroyed, and they destroyed the second Jewish temple. That temple is the one that Herod the Great built. That temple is the one that Jesus was at. He taught there. He, this is the temple that existed during his lifetime. According to Josephus, the city was ravaged by murder and famine and cannibalism. These are horrible things to think about. It is not surprising that Jesus said to the women, as he's prophesying of what is to come, Weep for yourselves and for your children. Jeremiah spoke of the pain experienced by women and children when Babylon attacked Jerusalem. There's a lot of similarity between that time and the time that Jesus prophesied of. Lamentations 2, 10 through 12. The elders of daughter Zion sit on the ground in silence. Jeremiah has been there. He sees this. So he's writing from what he experienced himself and saw for himself. They've thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. 
The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. And then Jeremiah talks. My eyes are worn out from weeping. I'm turning within. My heart is poured out in grief because of the destruction of my dear people. Because children and infants faint in the streets of the city. They cry out to their mothers. Where is the grain and wine? That's famine. They faint like the wounded in the streets of the city as their lives fade away in the arms of their mothers. Jesus knew that the people of Jerusalem would go through this type of judgment again. It would be so horrific that the people would want to die. And he told them, they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. And that is a quote from Hosea 10, 8, which says the high places of Avon, the sin of Israel. So a high place is where they committed idolatrous worship. So that's why it's called the sin of Israel, this high place that shall be destroyed. The thorn and thistle shall grow on all their altars. They shall say to the mountains, cover us and to the hills fall on us. Hosea is prophesying way back, around 700-something B.C. Isaiah is also prophesying around that same time, 700-something B.C. 600, 700, 700, 800. You know, we have to count backwards. Anyway, Isaiah 2, 19 says, uh, regarding the future... They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. So we're looking ahead. And Revelation 6 talks about this time in the future. I looked when he opened the sixth seal. That's the lamb opening the sixth seal. Behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood and the stars of heaven fell to earth. Skip forward to verse 15. The kings of the earth and the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, the wrath of Jesus. For the great day of his wrath has come. Who is able to stand? So we're looking now at the judgment of the tribulation, which will once again bring about these horrible conditions. At this time, At the beginning of the tribulation, the Jews will rebuild the third temple and they will reinstate sacrifices. But the Antichrist will put a stop to the sacrifices when he commits the abomination of desolation. I feel like I need to pause and take a breath. (laughs) But how do we know these things? We understand it from Daniel 9, 26 through 27. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. That is the death, the crucifixion of the Messiah, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with the flood 
until the end of the war, desolations are determined. So that's things to come. Desolations will happen. Then he, and I have highlighted he in black to match the prince. So you can see that's who it's been talked about. And this is the Antichrist. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. A week is seven days. Seven days is representing seven years. In the middle of the week, so in the middle of those seven years, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Now, I'm not going to decipher everything in this code in Daniel, but we're looking just at the end of sacrifice and offering. The prince who is to come, the Antichrist, will put an end to sacrifice and offering. That means there have to be some sacrifices and offerings happening. That means there has to be a temple there. So that's why watching the Temple Institute in Israel right now, as they're getting everything ready for the third temple, that's a pretty big deal. It's going to happen. But the really big deal is that at the end of the tribulation, Israel will do exactly what's prophesied in Hosea 3, 5. So I want to see these two bad news, good news prophecies side by side again. Hosea 3, 4, Israelites must live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterwards, the people of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come with awe to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. In this verse, David their king might refer to Jesus as the king, but it might refer to resurrected David as king. And that makes sense, too, because they can come to the Lord, their God. Jesus is Lord. <laughs> Jesus is the king. And David, resurrected David, can rule at his side with him. But we're not trying to figure that out today. <laughs> what we want to keep looking at is what Jesus was saying to these women. We need to remember Luke 13, 35. And he said this before he was on the way to the cross. See, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what we're focusing on now. The phrase to come in the name of the Lord. It is used twice and then it's repeated on that second occurrence. So the first time that it is used is when David said it, when he came forward to fight Goliath. This is so wonderful. First Samuel seventeen forty five. David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David came in the name of the Lord to deliver Israel from their huge enemy. And that's the same idea that we see in Psalm 118. This prophecy in Psalm 118 puts the phrase in the mouths of the people of Israel. And they quoted from this Psalm and Jesus quoted from this Psalm. So this is three times in scripture. 
When the Jews quote a portion of a passage, it often refers to a larger portion of the passage. So we are looking at more than just the one verse here. Psalm 118, starting with verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. When Jews say this in the future, when they confess that they rejected Jesus and he is the Messiah, and they then will be saying, we recognize you are the Messiah. We recognize we rejected you. We recognize we need you to save us. Look at the rest of the passage now. When they say that, the next thing they can say is, this was the Lord's doing. I mean, the rejection of Jesus was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. It's a wonder. This is amazing. And when you realize that, then this is the day the Lord has made. We will, be, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a prayer of repentance and a salvation prayer and a request for deliverance. And then they say, we have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord. He's given us light. And then they want to sacrifice again. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. And now they're praising God. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God. I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his mercy endures forever. Mercy is that wonderful Hebrew word, hesed. So this is covenant uh, faithfulness of God. They are rejoicing in him, keeping his covenant to them, his love for them. So in the future, at the end of the tribulation, when the Israelites return to the Lord, when they repent of their sin, of their rejection of Jesus, and this is going to be like in mass, almost as a whole nation, people group, when they confess their reception of Jesus as their savior, they will see him as their king and his messianic kingdom will begin and that's the good news of Hosea 3, 5. The repentant criminal on the cross had knowledge of the Messiah's kingdom. Wow. He knew something about the prophecies of the Messiah and his kingdom. And when he received Jesus as his king, he did so even as he was being executed for a crime. The criminal confessed his guilt. He said he was receiving what he deserved. The criminal confessed the innocence of Jesus. So he recognized who he was and that he had done nothing wrong. And the criminal asked Jesus to save him. And that's in Luke 23, 42, or Luke 23, 42. The criminal said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What happens in the kingdom of the Messiah? Hosea 3, 5 told us they will come with awe to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So now the messianic kingdom is that wonderful 1000 year period when Jesus has returned in visible bodily form 
to the earth and Israel serves him as their true king. And the 1,000 years, that number comes from Revelation chapter 20. And I'm not giving you that full verse, but that's where it mentions a thousand years starting with, well, the beginning of chapter 20. We are given a description of the land of Israel during the millennial kingdom in Ezekiel 36, verse 35. They will say, this land that was desolate, have you been hearing that word a few times? This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the wasted, desolate, ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. The Messianic kingdom will be beautiful, and the criminal looked forward to that. But Jesus gave the criminal better news than he could have imagined that he would receive that day. When the criminal received Jesus as Savior and King, He learned that he would rejoice with him on that very day. And the criminal would not have to wait till the last days to be with Jesus. He was going to be right then, right there, at death that day. Luke 23, 43. Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise. Just saying the word brings beauty to mind. Peace, joy, good things, purity, colors, light. Paradise. The Greek word is paradisos. It's from an old Persian word for garden or park. In the Old Testament, it is used to refer to the Garden of Eden and Also, the Garden of God. There's a phrase like that. I've given you a bit of Albert Barnes' commentary. He says, This is a word of Persian origin and means a garden, particularly a garden of pleasure, filled with trees and shrubs and fountains and flowers. In hot climates, such gardens were especially pleasant, and they were attached to the mansions of the rich and to the palaces of princes. The word came to denote any place of happiness and was used particularly to denote the abodes of the blessed in another world. I'm going to share this next statement from him, even though it's kind of in the mythology realm. The Romans spoke of their Elysium and the Greeks of the gardens of Hesperides, where the trees bore golden fruit. So that was what their idea was of paradise. Just a lovely place. Also should just share the Garden of Eden means the Garden of Pleasure or the Garden of Delight. So this is all good. When paradise is brought up, it is a beautiful idea. What did the repentant criminal understand about paradise? At a very minimum, he would have thought that it would be like the Garden of Eden. So a delightful place. Jesus wouldn't have used a word that the criminal wouldn't understand. He was giving him good news. Well, we've been back in time. We've been forward to the future. And now we need to go down to the grave. So to Sheol. From the Old Testament, we know that people like Job 
and Jacob and David, they all mentioned going to Sheol. They expected to go to Sheol at their death. When all the statements in scripture are looked at regarding Sheol, we find that Sheol was a place where both the righteous and the wicked would go at their death. But they did not go to hang out together like we are together on earth. Jesus helps us understand that even though both the righteous and the wicked are went to Sheol, and this is Old Testament and before Jesus, there were two compartments or sections. And we learn this through his story about the rich man and the poor man, Lazarus. So I'm going to read that to you. I'm not going to put it on the screen. Luke 16, 22 through 26. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here while you're in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot. Neither can those from there cross over to us. So you see the separation. There's a good place and there's a bad place. Based on Jesus' words to the criminal, we know that Jesus went to paradise. Because he said, today, I will be with you in paradise. We also know from Ephesians 4.8, when he ascended on high, and this he is Jesus, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. So this is understood to mean that the righteous in paradise were taken by Jesus into the heavenly presence of God. So we could say that paradise itself was relocated to heaven. And that's why Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. I also want to uh, give you 2 Corinthians twelve four because Paul used the word paradise when he said he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. He's talking about being caught up into the presence of God. And he used the word paradise. So this is after Jesus. So that's another indication that paradise is relocated. Paradise is not part of Sheol. It's not part of the grave. It now is only, this last sentence, when Sheol was emptied of the people in paradise, it remained a place of torment for the wicked. And the Greek word for Sheol is Hades. And we call that hell. And this is a place for the wicked. Even now. Jesus told the repentant criminal that he would be in paradise with him that very day. Now, the criminal was willing to wait for the, the kingdom. He's like, just remember me in those last days. Whoa, he didn't have to wait. <laughs> Today. 
And this also means that criminal died that day, which is a blessing that he didn't have to suffer on the cross longer, which sometimes people did suffer longer than one day. Well, what do we learn about life after death from Jesus' promise to the repentant criminal? First of all, one thing is that the body and the soul will exist separately from each other. And we know from other scriptures, so that's why this is in parentheses. Body and soul are separate from each other until they're reunited at the resurrection of the body. The criminal died on the cross, his body was hanging on the cross, and his soul was with Jesus in paradise. So that's the separation of the body and soul. Immediately after death, the soul of the saved, those who have received Jesus, will experience blessing. There's consciousness, and there's an ability to experience blessing, good things, see recognize others and know comfort. This is great. And immediately after death, the soul of the saved will be with Jesus. Now, I know I've already said something like that and you might be like, yeah, I know, but that's the big deal. (laughs) Jesus being with him and where he is is what makes it good. Think about this. The whole gospel was covered in the first statements that we have heard from the cross. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. And he's looking and talking about the Roman soldiers who are crucifying him. But we're hearing forgiveness is needed and Jesus gives it and God the Father gives it. So between the two of them. And then the criminal acknowledged his own guilt and asked Jesus to remember him. So that is the salvation prayer. And then Jesus guaranteed the gift of eternal blessed life with him from that moment on. Nothing else was required from the criminal. He believed and received Jesus as his king and his savior. So you can see the free gift of salvation. He couldn't do anything else. He couldn't get down and go work or serve. He could praise Jesus and thank him for the rest of his time that he was hanging on the cross. And maybe he could even talk to those who were around and testify. Did you hear what he just said to me? (laughs) I'm going to paradise with Jesus today. Don't you want to go? It's going to be better than this place. But remember this. Believing in Jesus did not take the pain of crucifixion away from that criminal. He still suffered physically. He suffered physically. But he knew what was waiting for him after his death. So there was a change in perspective. And his suffering, he knew it was, I can't even imagine how horrible it was. We can't. But it was temporary. And was it worth it? Was it worth it to that criminal to be hanging on the cross next to Jesus and get gospel offered to him and a promise of eternity with Jesus right then. I think we'll hear that from him one day. You know what? This was good for me. I'm glad I was crucified on the cross next to Jesus. Wow. The pain was not removed, but he had the presence and the promise 
of Jesus to comfort him until it was over. And the same is true for us. So, rejection or reception of Jesus? Judgment or joy with him? If Jesus is your king, you do not have to wait to enjoy his presence. He is with you right now. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, you are king of the universe and you have anointed your son as king by your side, king over Israel and king over us. Thank you, Jesus, that you are um, our king. You are perfect and loving and strong and generous and you give us hope and comfort uh, you took away our sin and our guilt. Thank you for forgiveness of sin. Thank you for your righteousness that you give to us that allow us to enter into the holy presence of God. Thank you for the pictures that are painted that help us try to imagine the beauty and the, just the perfection, the blessedness, the paradise that we get to enjoy with you when we see you finally face to face. Help us keep living here with that in mind and give us your strength, your spirit to endure, to persevere through the suffering and the pain that you allow. I pray that you will use that in our lives. We don't want to suffer. We don't want the pain, but help us Accept it when you have allowed it. May it be for your glory. May it do your work in us and also magnify you and let others know that we are waiting to be with you. We have hope and joy for what is to come. We thank you again, Jesus, for your sacrifice for us. In your name we pray. Amen.